0: Welcome to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and I am really so pleased to have you share in a dialogue I recently had with best-selling author, international keynote speaker, and sold-out workshop leader, Anne wilson Shay. Anne is an expert on multiple forms of addiction and codependence, and their insidious effects on individuals, families, relationships, workplaces, and, of course, society at large. A Ph.D. in psychology, she left the standard practice of psychotherapy in 1984 to develop, found, and teach her own approach to healing called Living in Process. Anne Wilson-Shape is part Native American. She has authored over a dozen books, including Beyond Therapy, Beyond Science, Women's Reality, When Society Becomes an Addict, and Escape from Intimacy. Glad to have you with us. So, please take us... Into the most essential teaching points that you have, focusing of course on the nature of addiction and how addiction shows up in our society, to
1: do that, I have to go back you know i 'm a work in progress at seventy five still, and my early writings came out of the women 's movement and the living and process work that I do came out of my work in civil rights and the women's movement um uh, I was trained I have a doctorate in psychology and I was trained as a psychotherapist and and slowly over the years began to see that that my belief was that actually psychotherapy itself was a part of the problem and and integrated into a dysfunctional system that didn't work and so because of my work with blacks and my work with women, I began to evolve my own approach to healing, which is what I call living in process. And out of my observations at that point, as I worked with women, I began to see the deep rage that women had and the deep pain and to see it from a broader perspective of not just each individual woman's pain or even family of origin pain, but pain of of being in a society, a structured society that was antithetical to much of what women believe and feel and of uh, their experience of the world, and so out of that, I began to notice that many of the people that uh, I came in contact with would slowly talk about being addicts of one kind or another, and I just, it was like a shock to me to realize that so many people were alcoholics, and, um, you know, I had no training for that, really. As I went back and looked over my training to get my doctorate, I had three hours in my entire Ph.D. work on addiction. And the problem with that was that I knew nothing, but I thought I knew something, which is, I think still true in the professions, and and so I when I wrote for women's about women's issues, I talked about Western culture being a white male society, and my first book was Women's Reality: An Emerging Female in a White Male System, and I began to look at three different systems: the reactive, what I call the reactive female system, which was an adjustment to the major culture and then the emerging female system which is what i think is is more true to to women's soul and being and than the white male culture and and once i got interested in addiction i began to realize that it was just everywhere and i i started you know asking people when i went to to workshops and conferences and speeches and stuff how many people identified as an addict, and I was just amazed and with the um, number of people that identified themselves and i I also found that you know I had uh addicts in my own family treatment and <laughs> family treatment and and then I combed through my own clients and found you know that I had people that I was treating for psychological problems and as a therapist who were addicts, and I was completely ignoring, you know, their
0: alcoholism or their drug addiction or their sex addiction. If we could just run down a quick list of all the things that qualify as addictive.
1: In one of my books, I think it was When Society Becomes an Addict, I divided addictions into two groups, what I call the process addictions and the substance addictions. And I think we're much more familiar with substance addictions like you know, alcohol, drugs, prescription drugs, food, sugar, things that we ingest that change our brain chemistry and change our thinking and perception and the way we see the world. And then I begin to look at the process addictions, where we're addicted to to a process, like sex addiction, shopping addiction, um, where the characteristics are exactly the same. But they're much more subtle and they're much more integrated into the society. Money addiction, for example, or spending. And began to see that the addictive process was the same. It's almost like changing channels. I've, I've never seen anybody with just one addiction. If you deal with your alcoholism, your sugar addiction almost always comes up. Or your money addiction, or your sex addiction, you know. Uh, so I began to see that What I call the addictive process was integrated into the society, and I remember when I said that at one conference, there were about a thousand people there, and I said, the society itself functions exactly as an active alcoholic. I had never said those words before, and when I said them, I caught my breath, and a thousand people caught their breath, and there was this. Silence that hung in the air and then people were on their feet applauding. And, and that's when I began to see that the society not only supports addiction, and I think, I think the reason it supports it in some ways, there are many, it's very complex, but I think the reason it supports it is that in order to tolerate the society we've built, this Western culture that we've built, we need to be out of touch with ourselves. And there's nothing better that works for that than addictions. And I have said that the person who's best adjusted to this society is the person, the zombie, who's not dead and not alive. Because the society needs you to do its work, but it doesn't want you to be fully alive or you can't stand what's around you. And I think we're seeing that right now in Western culture, that it's more and more obvious and so the society itself subtly encourages addictions, and the process addictions, like consumerism and food and alcohol and drugs, well, just everything, very integrated into the society.
0: Would hoarding, which is generally considered an obsessive-compulsive kind of thing, would some of those fall in Absolutely. with...
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I guess when I left the field, I left the field of psychology in 1984. The reason I did it is that I just thought the psychological paradigm was not answering the questions that we had about people's dysfunction as well as an addiction paradigm. For example, one of the things I discovered when I did some historical research, well, I actually looked at the kind of thinking the alcoholic does or the addict, and I had done my internship at Bellevue Hospital in New York where just about everybody was diagnosed as schizophrenic, <laughs> and and uh, we even had pseudo-normal schizophrenic, because was one of our diagnostic categories there. But schizophrenia is a thinking disorder, and I am fascinated as I begin to learn more about addiction that the kind of thinking that a non recovery addict does is almost identical to the schizophrenic. It's just schizophrenia is further down the line. And then a woman came up to me when I said this in a speech and said, Did you know that when the umbrella concept of schizophrenia was developed that it included alcoholism? And I said, No. And then I did some research, and she was absolutely right. So you know, I began to see that somehow psychology itself is so integrated into this dysfunctional system that it helps you to adjust to the dysfunctional system, but it doesn't help you
0: to get whole. So I had to go my own way then. This is fascinating. All right, let's dig into it even more. You've written that addiction is always progressive and fatal. Well, this is part of what they say in AA, and it's been my experience, that
1: AA says that you're never standing still. You're either going backwards or you've got to be moving forward, but you never can just hold your own. And that has been my experience in working with addicts. And even, Mike, if you have a person who's a relationship addict in a relationship with a non-recovering alcoholic, for example... Most of the time, that person that Al-Anon in relationship to the alcoholic will die before the alcoholic does. And relationship addiction will kill you faster than alcohol does. And all of them lead to death of the spirit and then the death of the body follows. So it is a progressive fatal disease. There's no question about it. And on a societal
0: level, I think that we see that it's a progressive, fatal disease. Too. We're really all of us who have our eyes open and care are really concerned about that. And since you're thinking about these things all the time, do you think that Western industrial society still has an opportunity to hit bottom and perhaps find a way to sobriety and a life-affirming? way of life or do you see it that western industrial society is going to collapse and die altogether i'm not a very good soothsayer
1: i don't know and i also you know don't tend to think that way i think that we're in dire straits and i must admit until fairly recently i couldn't imagine what could happen to really make the kind of shift that we need to make to a different paradigm, like the human experiment, I, mean, I think in big terms, and I don't think it's just the society, I think it's the the whole human experiment, and Western culture, of course, has great influence on that right now at this particular point in history. You know, maybe we have to get hit by a meteorite or something. I, I couldn't imagine what would happen, and with what is going on now in the world with the economic situation and also the environmental situation, those two things especially, I find this a very, very hopeful, exciting time because I think that no matter how we try to patch it up at this point, which is what I think we've been trying to do for some time, you know, focusing on the symptoms, you know, whether it's health issues or politics or economics or to me these are all symptoms of the bigger issue and I think that we're at a point where we can't go on as usual and just try to patch it up that we're going to have to do something radically different and move up as I call it to the perspective of the eagle and look at a bigger picture and these symptoms can keep good people who really want to bring about something that can keep them so busy that they don't see the bigger picture, I think. And I think that may be part of the issue. But so I don't know whether we can hit bottom and recover. I don't think that if we have any sense at all that we want to patch up and heal this system. I think that we have to move into a really different paradigm and a really different way of living with ourselves, with the earth, with each other. And what it will take to do that, I don't know. But in in my living process where I believe and I've seen is if we just participate in the process and trust that process and do the best we can to participate, something comes out that we can't, I always anticipate.
0: Like your experience on the stage when the truth
1: exactly through,
0: surprised you.
1: Right. And, and so I don't have to know, you know, where I'm going. I don't have to know that. And I think that, you know, it takes a, a tremendous amount of trust to just keep participating uh, because Western culture is based on the illusion of control and the belief that First of all, nothing would happen unless you make it happen. And you have to manipulate and control it. And we're not doing a very good job with that paradigm.
0: You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and we are talking today with holistic healer and Native elder, Anne Wilson Shafe.
1: I remember at one point, one of the women's magazines in New York asked me to do a article on women's spirituality and i had lunch with the editor and we were sort of talking about it and i said well i really haven't thought about this specifically in this way and she said well what would you write and i sat there quiet for a few minutes and i said well spirituality is process and um participating in your process is your spirituality and I said, you know, I don't think I can do an article because that's all there is to it. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> I have another question for you. Okay. Now, when dealing with addictions and when there are people resistant to change, but they're doing a lot of harm and damage to those around us, so let's just extrapolate and say that we're dealing now with The society that is really killing the planet. Mm -hmm. Can you see, I mean, there's prevention and there's intervention, right? And prevention so far has not really, the precautionary principle and all that has not really been used in planning the society or getting us to where we are. So do you see the possibility for measures of intervention? And have you imagined anything that could be different from what has perennially been attempted, which are nonviolent protests or militant uprisings.
1: Well, let's start with the elements of intervention. With an intervention, you have to have done your own work beforehand, the people who are doing the intervention, so that you are clear and you are not embroiled in your own anger, fear, cetera cetera et etc cetera, et cetera. so that's that's one thing um, that I think is absolutely key in an intervention that you you don't get enmeshed in those feelings and emotions and side that we usually would get involved in in human interaction. then you also need to be willing to state consequences if the person does not. Like go to treatment and start recovery. And that those consequences have to be something that are important to that person. For example, you know, in the history of treating addiction, we found that one of the most effective consequences with many people is their work, that they will lose their job. And it's very interesting that many people who are addicts are much more willing to lose their relationships than they are their job. So if you can involve the work in the mix, that's very important. And the next thing is that you have to be absolutely willing to act on those consequences. Well, I think we can take this model and just stretch it for a minute. I haven't even said this before, so this is why I love talking and listening to myself. <laughs> is that I think we can take this model and say that's what the Earth is doing right now. The Earth is saying these are the consequences if you continue the way you're going, and I'm going to do them. You know, and there of course, obviously, we hear in the news every day there are people who don't want to listen to this, but there are also people who do want to listen to this. If we don't listen and and change our paradigm. I believe that the earth will show us the consequences. And if you believe in wholeness and that we are part of the earth and the earth is part of us, that, you know, this is very effective. And whether it gets our attention in time or not, we don't
0: know. That's in the crystal ball we can't read. Exactly. Or or we don't need to read it. (laughs) I'm thinking about what you just said, about the first issue, you know, that the intervener or interveners need to have done their own work, and I was thinking about human beings on the Mm -hmm. planet and of really advanced wisdom figures. And then when you said about the earth, I thought, well, that trumps everything, you know. But people being able to possibly do something in your own lengthy healing process that you've shared so generously in your writings you share that you've uncovered and really deeply explored your own Native American roots and the indigenous wisdom teachings from a number of different Native cultures around the world. Yes. And you speak of the need for this radical paradigm shift to the new old ways that are connected to the old ways of these Native cultures. Mm-hmm. So how about talking a little bit about... What you meant by the new old ways, what they entail, and if there's something new in the vision of how they would come out in this next incarnation, that'd be great to hear about too.
1: Okay, well, um, as you know, those who've read my books know that that I was raised as a white kid, and my family moved away from where we're from, which is down here in Arkansas. When I was seven, my father started doing research for the government, but The reason I see now that they did that is that the age I am, I would have possibly been carted off to a a residential school, and then kids were at that point, and they protected me from that, and yet they raised me. I come from a medicine line. My great-grandmother was a medicine woman. My mother was. I, I knew they doctored everybody, but I didn't know they were medicine women, and yet I was taught to think in a different way. And always felt like I didn't quite belong to the society, you know. So I kind of carried that as a difference and didn't understand it. So when I finally found out the truth about my heritage, it felt like the tumblers of my soul fell into place. And and all my elder, native elder friends all over the world, I called them and said, guess what, you know, I'm a Cherokee. And, Mm -hmm. And they said, we knew that. We were just waiting for you to find out. And so... That, that has been such a depth of, I don't know, learning to trust myself with information that I had that never quite fit into calculus or, you know, all the things I took in college. And what I found, simple things like, I have a very close dear friend who's a, a Navajo elder and teacher. And, um, and he said to me one time, he said, I don't care. How a person prays. Uh, what's important to me is that he does pray. And if he does, he can always stand beside me. And I, I just thought how much more wisdom there is in that in terms of understanding spirituality. I mean, this man, he's one of the most spiritual people I know, and he talks about everybody's spirituality being important and respecting everybody's spirituality and that none of us has the whole picture. And if we just respect other people's piece of the picture, our picture will broaden in terms of our connection with the creator or the all that is or whatever you want to call it and our, our participation with that all that is and, and to me that is so much more sophisticated
0: than religion and denominations,
1: for example.
0: So is that a major piece of what you mean by the new old ways? I'm just using that as an example yeah. of that I have
1: found, for example, when I've sat with Maori elders or for so much Australia, I was invited out of the blue to come and sit with a group of Aboriginal elders. I had absolutely no reason why they invited me that I knew about. And I got there and they said, We've been waiting for you. Where have you been? Mm-hmm. And then they just started, they ignored me and started talking. And I sat there and sobbed because I suddenly realized that they were articulating my unspoken knowings and that you know the wholeness of these teachings I I think the new age has kind of distorted it in a way but the wholeness of this teaching is so much more inclusive than anything that we have in western culture and I think a big part of that is our science I mean we have developed a science that breaks things down and isolates them so that we can study them. And we have very little knowledge of wholeness. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely. The fragmentation of knowledge. Exactly. Exactly. And um, one Aboriginal elder said to me, who was the, the last priest of his tribe, the last one to speak the language, adopted me into his family. And he said, You white folk, uh, centuries ago, you went the way of science and technology, and it will destroy the planet. And I hope that you see that before it's too late. And so when I started going after Western science, for example, I felt like I had, you know, let a tiger out of the cage. I mean, you know, even to, to fundamentalists who don't like Western science, it's like a religion on another level. So to say that Western science may not be the best science there is or that there even are other sciences and that these sciences may have a fuller perception of the world than Western science is huge heresy. And yet my experience is that that is true. And I am not saying that we need to go back what i'm saying is that we need to move forward trusting um the process if you will of evolving into something fuller than anything that's known at this point a new integration yes yes but not with our heads it has to be with our whole beings and and this is one of the problems i think in with addiction and with Western culture is that we try to solve things with our heads instead of with our wholeness, and that just doesn't work. it just won't work. I was thinking with one of the questions you asked earlier, like some of the groups like Greenpeace and groups like that at one point asked me to consult with them um about you know what they were doing, and when I met with them, it was. Their content, I support and agreed with, but their process was we're going to make them see this and we're going to make them do what we want. And I said, you're not there yet. You know, if if you think that, that the way to do something is try to control someone else and force them into the way you think, you're part of the problem. And I think that that's what we've seen when you asked me about the riots and the the peaceful protests and the riots. I think that somehow it has to come out of our participating
0: in a different way. Any vision of that at all? Not a lot. Okay. I have another question. First of all, I'm not sure if you are at all familiar with the work of David Schnarch, are you? I'm not. Okay. Well, he wrote Constructing the Sexual Crucible, and he says in that book that intimacy is the next evolutionary step for the human being. That if it's hard for you, it's because it's hard for all of us. That we're not really quite up to that yet. And um, I'm wondering whether that's so. You wrote a whole book called Escape from Intimacy. I did indeed. And I really would love to hear from you about humankind's escape from intimacy and what that's all about. I think it's a very important part of this whole exploration. Well, see, I probably would
1: disagree with him, but it's hard since I don't know his work. But I'm not sure that this is a human issue because one of the things that this white male system, addictive society, I now call it TMM society, technocratic mechanistic um materialistic society it keeps evolving its name in my work but one of the things that it does is it has what i call a pseudopodic ego and that's part of the people in the society and the society itself and the pseudopods a false foot an amoeba i always like the amoeba and the amoeba sends out this false foot and it whatever it comes in contact with it it pulls into its food vacuole And if it likes it, it keeps it. If it doesn't like it, it spits it out. But if it likes it, it becomes a part of the body of the amoeba, indistinguishable. And I think that that's part of our thinking process in Western culture is that we think what we think is reality. We think our perceptions are reality. And so often we will hear things like, This is a human characteristic because it's a characteristic in this society. And I'm not convinced that it's a human characteristic to escape from intimacy. I just have not experienced that as a human characteristic. I have not seen it. I think it is very much a characteristic of this society. And I think that, and my experience is, my observation that, that, We are more manipulable when we're not intimate with ourselves or with each other. And we have been taught over time to be terrified about really knowing what's going on inside of us and who we are and working through our issues and facing our issues. And we are even more terrified to actually connect with another human being. And sex is a part of that. But sex is a meaningless part of that unless it's also on a spiritual, emotional, holistic level. And so to say that this is a human characteristic, I just, I can't go along with that.
0: And human beings in Western culture, yes. But what is that escape from intimacy about, you say it's fear and that it's taught, and so can you go into it just another layer deeper than that? Well, I, anything that's learned can be unlearned. And the living and process work
1: that I do with people, one of the aspects of that is what I call deep process work. I sort of think of it as, remember the opening scene at Macbeth where the witches are around the cauldron, bubble, yes. bubble, bubble toil, and trouble, you know. And I think that a part of our work as human beings in this life is to bring as much as we can of our unconscious into consciousness so that we know what we're dealing with and we have the opportunity to heal it and deal with it. I believe that's a big part of why we're here and what life is about. And in that doing, we become more intimate with ourselves. We become more accepting of those things That our brains tell us we have to hide from ourselves. And as we do that, we have more freedom and more real spiritual power to become connected with not just other people, but with the wholeness of everything. We have more intuition. We have more ability to feel with theirs. I know that sometimes, for example, I go by a construction site and I just feel pain in my body, you know, with the way the earth is gouged out to feel with animals and how they're treated, you know. And what we do is when we don't have the tools, we try to ignore and deny and push down those feelings of pain, those feelings of aloneness, those feelings of anger, whatever they are. And the
0: guilt for what we've done, out, out, damn spot. Yes. Yes.
1: Exactly, and the whole thing. And so, as we learn to do our deep process work and to bring those feelings, see, Western culture has absolutely denied the existence of feelings. Science says, basically, don't feel that it's always out of control. It's always bad. And the door into that this kind of healing, I believe, is is through your feelings and. I ran across the work of a man years ago named Max Freedom Long, and he had worked with, um, Kahuna's. Oh, yeah, I
0: have four of his books on my shelf.
1: Oh, really? Well, see, I just, I just thought, ah, oh, this man has put a name to what my experience. And, and basically, you know, he talks about the three cells, actually, six or shallow cells, but the three cells are. The, the con- I mean, it's sort of like Freud, but it's so different. But the conscious self, which is the self that deals with the world, and, but has no memory and no feelings. It's just the rational self. Then the lower self, which is the bubble, bubble, toil, and trouble bunch, which is, you know, all these things running around while scaring us to death, it's our id, as Freud called it. And then he talks about the higher self, being the place where you are basically one with God and all things. That's the place we come from. And the interesting point to me is he said the conscious self, the thinking self, the rational self, has no direct access to that higher self. It has to go through the unconscious to get there, the lower self. And this has been my experience with the deep process work that I do with people. And I think we have so filtered that out in our culture that that has been the basis of our escape from intimacy with ourselves, that we have tried to reach all knowledge, self-knowledge and other knowledge, rationally and not integrating all parts of our being in doing that process.
0: You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and our guest is author, healer, and teacher, Anne wilson Chase. What do you think are the political dimensions of asking for a change of that magnitude, which, you know, just to recap, would be wholeness, access to what you just called the higher self, cultivating that intimate relationship. Actually, you no, know, I've been working on my latest book.
1: I'm now calling it my MO, my Magnum opus, I can't even think of a name for it. But one of the things that I did was in the second section of that book I talked about what I'd mentioned before is the symptoms and uh and not really the issues, the symptoms that distract us. And in the process of doing that I, I got dictionaries out, I got the constitution out, I got the Bill of Rights I mean, I reread all these things, but I I got the Webster's Dictionary and all that, and I looked up politics, and I was appalled at what I read, which just fit my experience. Basically, they said that politics is a form of systematic lying and manipulation. I mean, this was a dictionary definition, and I have been saying for years, that if we would ever have a functional system, it could not include politics, that we absolutely need to abolish the whole field of politics from our existence, that we can't be healthy with it. And I just love being proved right. I mean, if you, if you look at the Washington today, and not just Washington, but any place around the earth that has adopted politics, it is probably the most dysfunctional thing going and the best characteristics of the addictive system. So I don't have any hope with that. Frankly, that's something I can say. I don't see it. I just don't see that we need it. I think we
0: need to get rid of it, and I don't know how I will through it, but I think they may do it for us. Fascinating. You know, there are some very, very intelligent people writing about history as something that's cyclical, that shows seasons and cycles rather than ongoing upward progress. And there certainly have been peaceable societies over the whole history of human life on earth Mm -hmm. but uh, a big problem it seems is that what tends to happen is that eventually these societies get invaded by aggressive conquerors you know and and get exploited and Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. We know the story. Yeah, we know it. I used to cross my legs in class, in history class. I couldn't stand history class just to hear and learn about <laughs> what's gone down here. War upon war upon war. Yes, I yeah, it is, So, okay. So here's the question: Do you think that globalization, which, as far as uh, recorded history, we don't really see that this has happened before this? high-speed communications and people connected around the whole world, do you think that globalization presents an unprecedented situation whereby we might be able to make it fundamentally unacceptable worldwide for these imperialist invaders, that that behavior would simply be sanctioned anywhere it cropped up?
1: I don't know about that, of course. What I am concerned about is that globalization is being controlled basically by Western culture at this point. And it's I very think disturbing. That's a big problem. As I've said, and you quote me, and it's really interesting because I didn't even realize I would said this out loud, but I don't see history as so cyclic. As a looping, we go back and we repeat the mistakes, but maybe we move forward a bit. And then we repeat the mistakes and maybe we move forward a bit. And not knowing history is going to hurt us. And so I do feel that we potentially as a, as a human experiment have the possibility of moving forward. And I, it's right now, I do believe that the crucial question on the planet is if we can find a way for open systems to survive when the purpose of closed systems is to destroy everything unlike themselves. And I don't really know the answer to this. I think that we need to let this question sink in really heavy duty. And I think we're seeing I mean, look what just happened to the healthcare bill. You know, the public wanting a public option yes. and the Democrats caving on it and trying to be open, people trying to be open for innovation in some way and dealing with a system that's saying, if this is there, I will absolutely kill it. And this is played out every day in our political world and in our scientific world. And I just think that this is the crucial question. And I think that in the past, open systems have been slaughtered. And if we can ask this question, and we have to ask it with respect to the planet, and take it seriously, I think that we can begin to generate other options. And to me, that's the most exciting thing. And that's all 550 pages that I've written on my ammo right now. I'm ready to chuck and just focus on this question for my next book because I do believe this is the crucial place where we are as a planet. In order to do that, we are going to have to accept Input from everybody on the planet and especially from people that are unlike ourselves. That's very hard for a culture like ours.
0: You wrote in one of your books of multivariant and multidimensional thinking. It just seems like that is what is called for to kind of take the octave on a question such as this. Yes, I think so. So can you define what you mean by that just so that those listening to the conversation and wanting to uh, go away and think about these things some more can join you in seeing what you mean by multivariant and multidimensional I'm thinking? Well, so much of our training in
1: Western culture,
0: and you know, and you and
1: I have, have run into that in, in our conversation too, is our training is dualistic, either this or that. And everything is set up in a binary a dualism. Mm-hmm. And one is right and one is wrong. And you have to choose and then fight for that basically.
0: If I'm up you're down. Yeah,
1: and the up down too. I mean it's, but it's always just two directions. And there's a couple of little things that I've been doing in my writing which I get a lot of flack about from editors by the way. Is that instead of saying but, you know, if you say, well, you know, this culture isn't very functioning very well, but it's the best we ever said. Instead of saying but, I always say and because the but sets up a dualism that negates the first part of the sentence. And so I just encourage people every time they want to use a but to say and. And it's amazing what that does to your brain. You know, your brain stops. And you say that doesn't sound right and I'm uncomfortable with that and all, you know, all these things happen. But, but something begins to shift. The other thing I do is whenever I set up a dualism, even in my everyday life, oh, should I do this or should I do that? Well, usually I don't want to do either one when I set that up. Almost always. And so I stop and I say, okay, what's the third option? In one of my books, I don't remember which one, but I called, I said this is like Lincoln logs. This is the building block of the society, these dualisms. And we run back and forth on these little Lincoln logs. These little kids don't even know what they are anymore. But it's like we build these dualisms. We run back and forth on them and we stay stuck on them. And the purpose of dualistic thinking is, first of all, it... It simplifies our world so that we don't see the multivariate dimensions, the the fourth, fifth dimensions and directions. And the second is that it keeps us stuck. And so we really don't have to deal with the world. We can only deal with our very, very limited conceptualization and thinking. And we are capable of so much more. We are capable in thinking of, Sixteen directions in the same time and several dimensions and layers. And as we open our minds to that kind of thinking and don't say stuck in the way we've trained. Like I had a friend who taught to, uh, composition, English composition and writing yeah. in, in inner city Detroit to these wonderful black kids. And he said, I'm teaching them how to think comparison, contrast, dualism, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I said, you're running their minds. That's what you're doing. You're running their minds because they think all over the place, and you're trying to teach them that this is the way to think. This is only the way to think in Western culture. Only the way to think in Western culture. It's not taught anywhere else. And so... I think we have to open that, again, open system, our mind, so that we go off in lots of directions and always look, just starting with saying, what's the third option? When I was a therapist, lots of my women clients would say to me, I, I can't make up my mind. Should I stay with my husband? Should I leave my husband? And when I you know, explored with them, they didn't want to do either one. You know, they they were stuck, and they used it to be stuck. And as long as they set it up that way, they framed it that way, they were indeed stuck. And I think that's part of why we as a culture are stuck, because our thinking is so framed that way. We ask our questions in terms of dualism. Do you think we should do this, or do you think we should do that? Do you think it will come out this way, or will it come out that way? When we do that, we're adding to the stuckness. So to expand our minds and expand the way we see the world, always
0: come up with a third, a fifth, a seventh. I love your teaching. Uh, You've said repeatedly in your books that uh, you've continued to stand by the 12-step programs as the most reliable ways to heal from an addiction or a life of addiction. And the first three steps, really involve a good deal of surrender. The first three steps are admitting that we're powerless over the addiction, Mm -hmm. coming to believe that a higher power could restore sanity to our lives, and turning our life over to that higher power. That's a lot of surrender. That's a lot of letting Mm -hmm. down. Mm -hmm. And so... Could you talk a bit about the power issues involved in upholding this addictive society and what is actually, since you've worked with so many people with this deep process work, what is going on in the nature of the person when they finally are willing to undergo that spiritual surrender?
1: Well, I can talk from my own experiences. You know, as a feminist, when I first read that first step, I got furious absolutely furious and i said i never again will be powerless over anything (laughs) you know and i just and that's all i saw that that i am powerless and i just couldn't i it took me like three years i mean i'm a person who's very dedicated with what i do and i'm also a person who's very honest and and won't say that i've Completed something when I haven't, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I was stuck on the first step, that first part of the first step. And then when I, I, it took me a long time and I finally saw that it said, I am powerless over alcohol. Yeah. And then I could say, I am powerless over the addictive process. Something has a hold of me, of us, that we you know that we don't know what is basically. Then I could move on, and then I got stuck on the last part. You know, and my life has become unmanageable. I thought, well, it's not really unmanageable. It's terrible. It's painful. You know, but it's not really unmanageable. And so I had to stick with that. And and I think really working the steps that way is very very helpful. And I think there comes a point. I can remember quoting this uh, this woman, this old black woman from an AA meeting, and, and she said, "Honey, even if you don't believe in God, can you believe you ain't him?" And I just thought, "Yeah, you know, I like that." You know, I can remember driving my midlife crisis car. I bought an old MG, and I was driving through the mountains in Colorado uh, with the top down one time. You know, and I just didn't like struggling with this new age concept that we create our own reality and there is no real reality. It's what we create, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I just looked around me and I said, you know, the mountains were so beautiful that day. And I said, if I got all of my really, really smart friends together, we couldn't have come up with this. You know, and it's just something, little moments like that that opened to me. I remember one time I was just standing looking at the stars and I suddenly like knew that reincarnation wasn't an idea. It was just real. And what I know is as I do my personal work, these moments are gifted to me where I tap in way beyond anything I could control or create. And The addictive system is so much about the illusion of control, the belief that I can control myself, the belief I can control other people, the belief that I can control what happens on the planet. And knowing that I can't is a relief in a way, very much a relief. But also knowing that I can participate and make a difference. Is a great relief.
0: This is your host, Jari Chevalier. You're listening to Words of Wisdom from Ann Wilson Shape on the Living Hero podcast at livinghero.com. My experience is that every addict
1: believes in the illusion of control.
0: And there's a real obstinacy about that, right? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And so what comes out of that is all this managing of other people, manipulating other people, manipulating the market, manipulating, you know, all of this stuff, it's all based on the illusion of control. And what I see in Native people around the world is they know that's a bunch of hogwash. They just know it, and they think it's really weird, You know, that anybody
0: would believe that illusion. What do you say about the notion of going cold turkey? In your experience, have you seen people who could go through a very rapid process where there was a powerful stroke of insight, a real fundamental change that made it possible for them to have a shift in spiritual understanding and a surrender Without a lot of obstinacy or long-term treatment?
1: I guess I want to believe it's
0: possible, but
1: I don't think anybody ever got cured from an insight. I think something, something can happen that the world suddenly looks different to you. But I also believe you have to do your footwork, you know, because the next day it's very easy to go back. You know what I mean? And the thing about the 12-step program we mentioned earlier, I do think it's a very effective tool to deal with the addictive process. The problem with the 12-step program is that it was developed by addicts for addicts. And it can help with the healing process from the addictive society. And... It does not know how, I believe, to go beyond that. At some point, something additional has to kick in to move you into the bigger picture. I believe that. And for me, it's the living process work. I'm sure there, you know, there are many other things, but for me, it's been the living process work, which takes you beyond the the recovery from addiction, but I believe that we have to first deal with the addictive process before we can do that. And, you know, I do believe in miracles. I mean, I do believe that suddenly some people just can get it. And my experience is a lot of people who say that, I don't know, they're more in their heads than they are totally in their being. And I do believe that it's possible. So, you know, I always check it out. I just check it out myself and see if it what it feels like to me when people say that. Because often they've got
0: something in their heads, but nothing has really changed. I guess, you know, people who come to you to do work with you are self-selecting and maybe they are aware that they have a capacity or a readiness – When you think about humanity as a whole and the masses, the masses and masses, uh, the billions of people on this planet, do you think that humanity is capable as a whole of doing this kind of really deep change and shift work, or has it always been sort of a very small self-selecting subset? I have no idea. I know that
1: I want to believe that humanity as a whole has something as it operates as a whole that is much bigger than any of us has individually, and that healing can happen. And um, I'm just amazed to see how some people just do heal. And I also am amazed to see as I, you know, meet with various people around the world, that some people that you wouldn't anticipate are already there. Mm -hmm. And so you, you just have to broaden your perspective. It's like we don't know enough. One of the things I love about Native people is they know they don't know. You know, they know that we don't know enough. For example, maybe the only way that Western culture can really look at itself is if the the Muslims force us to, you know? I mean, you just don't know the purpose and the reason for all these things. And, and one of the things that I do in my own life is I always just look at the outcomes when people say they're doing this or for this reason or that. Then I look, well, okay, then how, how did this turn out? Or what is the outcome of this particular decision? And, that gives me more information about what was really going on than what people think and say was really going on mhm, and so again i you know I just think when you think of this massive billions of people, goodness knows i mean it it's a lot, but there' are also i think energies and forces and processes. That are so far beyond our comprehension. Like when I said, maybe it will be the earth that teaches us this. We're so arrogant as human beings to think that we know it all. And we don't. So you
0: recommend less hubris. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in your book, Living in Process, you said that discipline is freedom. How is discipline freedom? Because I think that there's something turning in there, something interesting. Again, it's just my
1: own experience that when I approach, let's say my writing, when I approach it in a disciplined way, when I organize, um, well, I teach writing sometimes. I have writing seminars. And my belief is anybody who wants to be a writer already is a writer or they wouldn't want to be a writer. And so my issue is to just help bring that out. And so... One of the things that I do is, you know, give them exercises to become who they already are. And the the thing of it is it's already there. When I was a student in college, one of the things that I learned is, in writing books, for example, is to do an outline. But what my English comp person told me was you have to do an outline. And then you have to stick to it. And that sounded to me like prison, like being put in chains. And so I avoided outlines for years and years and years. Then I began to see that it wasn't the outline was the problem. It's what he taught me about it. And so I began to write outlines for my books, for my chapters, for my, you know, whatever I was doing. But with the knowing that as I write... The creative process also brings out in me things that I wouldn't have thought of when I did the outline. And so one of the things I'm really a stickler about is encouraging people to do outlines.
0: You know, I'm just thinking about poetry too. I was just referencing my own experience and what I've heard from teachers and other poets that there have been times when needing to write in a sonnet form or some other formal constraints actually became kind of a safety net through which the mind could be wildly creative and exactly.
1: free. Exactly.
0: And I just
1: find when I have my, when I'm clutching my little outline to my bosom <laughs> and that I feel like I have the freedom for my mind to just, race in any direction at once. And the way I do my outlines is I write down all these ideas because when I start on a project, the ideas just start coming. As one of my friends says, I have really great writing spooks. And what I do is just write down ideas, write down ideas. And then when I make my outline, I pull all this stuff out and lo and behold, the form is there. Mm
0: -hmm. The form emerges.
1: And that gives me the freedom To absolutely expand beyond anything that I would imagine that I could do when I'm actually start writing, and I come up with things I never would have thought of. And so that's my experience. That I keep laughingly saying that if I had my way, I would organize the world because I'm always, you know, organizing my books and organizing my household. And but when it's done. I have so much more freedom.
0: Yes, yes. I have the same ways of being that you do. And my experience is also that by having things cleared away and having a sort of rhythm to life, that it does give a lot of spaciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People tend to think of
1: that as constricting, and I don't.
0: Just to wrap up, what's happening in your life in the present? You mentioned working on your, your M.O., Working on that, I'm working on a new
1: book on women because I just think women are lost right now and I want to say some things. And I'm working on a cookbook. Cookbook? Excellent. Yeah, I've been, I have over 7,000 cookbooks. I love cookbooks. And I've been a food consultant for seminars and workshops all over the world. And I've discovered some just fascinating things about You know, what our grandmothers knew and ancient cooking all over the world. And then if we eat with varied cuisines, how much healthier our life is. Mm -hmm. And so I'm putting that all in a book, just having a great time doing it.
0: Do you still have a community of people living in Boulder, Montana?
1: We do. We have the old Boulder Hot Springs out there in and spa. One of those big, old, rambling hotels, and we slowly, slowly have been restoring it since about 1989. It's not completely restored, but we have a beautiful spa and a lovely retreat and meeting place, and we serve excellent food, of course. And it's a very healing place. It's in a valley. Uh, We have 70 hot springs on the property, and it's in a valley where the native people, the original people there would never fight or have hostilities because they said everyone should be able to come for healing to the springs, and so they had ceremonial things there and trading and kind of gatherings that never then would never fight and it's called peace valley and it's it's just such a healing place. My grandson said to me when he was really little he he loves to go there and he said uh he said, "Grandma, you should call this a hotel." He said, "A hotel's where people go and they spend the night and they leave." And he said, "He said this isn't a hotel. People come here and they want to stay a while." He says, really healing."
0: If and people uh, want to look it up, how do they find out more about the possibilities? Just of a look under Boulder Hot Springs. We have a
1: great web page and it shows the rooms and they're all decorated with antiques and it's a lovely old place. Just wonderful place.
0: Sounds great. Well, I so respect your holistic work. I think the people who come to listen to this podcast also are trying to kind of put the fragments together, and it's a monumental work. Do you have any parting thoughts for us? I just have such joy in the way I
1: live my life and the way the people around me live theirs, and the the people I work with all over the world. To have the privilege of seeing people who are in so much pain be really full human beings. You know, not that their lives are perfect. Of course not. I mean, they still have to deal with issues. and But that they're happy and productive and living their lives fully. I mean, it's such a privilege to be a part of that. I I feel that in every way. And, you know, I'm actually hoping my new book will be, my M.O., will be a kind of intervention maybe for the society. Maybe I'm too grandiose to think that it will be paid attention to, but my other books have been. So I'm 75 and I feel like I'm just getting started. Mm,
0: I can't wait to see that book.
1: (laughs) You know, if people are interested in more information, i just like to say that you can always reach me at uh, P.O. Box 990, Boulder, Montana, 59632, Wilson Shape Associates, if they want any more information about the books or you know, what I am doing or workshops or the living in process work. We have a really active network internationally, and uh, people are just amazing that are in that network.
0: Thank you so very much for sharing this time. Well, thank you, my dear, and it's good to talk about these things.